You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm going to be looking at issue number 70 of the series, which is the first of a three-part storyline called Operation Chicken Lips that also marks a new direction for the book, and a bit of the old one, actually. It is the debut of the series' third and final regular writer, Don Lomax, and also features the return of a character who had been the protagonist of the books in its very first issue, Ed Marks. After I cover the comic, I'll also be taking a look at the events of March of 1972, which is when this issue takes place, and where the song we came in with comes from, and that's Neil Young's Heart of Gold, a song that was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for the week of March 18, 1972. Taken from his album Harvest and featuring backup vocals by both James Taylor and Linda Ronstadt, Heart of Gold was and remains Young's only actual number one single on the United States pop charts. Our issue came out a little more than 20 years later, on May 26, 1972, and features a cover by Mike Harris and Mark McKenna that shows a U.S. soldier throwing a grenade underneath an approaching NVA tank with the title of our storyline, Operation Chicken Lips, over the top of the book's title. It's a solid cover and clearer than, say, some of the covers we were getting during the previous storyline with the Punisher, with the tank's gun sticking up over the title, giving it almost a 3D effect as it barrels down on the barbed wire fence and the sandbags that the soldier is crouching behind. The story title is called Operation Chicken Lips, and our creative team is as follows. Don Lomax Story, Wayne Van Sant Art, Phil Felix on letters and color, John Calise also on colors, Don Daly is the editor, and Tom DeFalco was the editor-in-chief. We open with Ed Marks, now a journalist for Stars and Stripes, hopping on board a chopper that is taking off. He drops his typewriter, which he laments is going to be taken out of his check, and is dropped off at Firebase Brass Hut, and the narration boxes as he flies out over the base and makes what I can best describe as a pretty hot landing suggests that he's once again frightened, but unlike the beginning of his tour in Vietnam, he's frightened because now he knows what to expect. He makes his way to a bunker and is greeted by the base's sergeant, who tells him that they basically have no mission there, just like chickens have no lips. They just sit around and take fire, which is what the Sarge calls harassing fire, which is that they've, they volley back, but there's not much else they can do. Ed is introduced to the rest of the base's crew and then settles into write and sleep during which he feels alone because of the way he not only doesn't know anyone there, but because he is a journalist and more or less an outsider. Plus, he has dreams about his own time in Vietnam. 
His sleep is interrupted by a major attack, and when he gets into a bunker, the Sarge tells him that they're hearing a lot on the radio about how Quang Tri City and the Vietnamese 3rd Division is getting hit very hard. Ed mentions that General Abrams has been hinting at a major offense for a while, and the sergeant corroborates that. A moment later, Dai Wee, the ARVN post commander, comes in and gives a report on the actions of the night patrol, saying that they are unable to radio in, so they have, they're going to have to send some men out to get them because they might have information that they need. The Sarge says that their area of operation includes part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail, where tanks have been moving, and that has to mean something because the enemy is using a lot of ordnance to protect their movements. The shelling stops, and they tend to the wounded, and then the mission becomes a little clearer. The company at the firebase is going to go up against the tanks that are moving their way through, and Ed is baffled. It's going to be what he calls a lightning raid. Get in, strike, hit what you can, and get out, and hopefully be able to slow them down at least for a while. The sergeant tells him to hang around the firebase until they get back, but Ed says he has his job, which is reporting on the action, so he goes along. They head into the jungle and wait. The tanks drive precariously along a mountain road. The squad begins firing and knocks the turret off one of the lead tanks. The tanks return fire and Sarge is hit, but it's only his shoulder. The other tanks are blocked in and one of them attempts to go around the wreckage. Sarge, his shoulder hurting, tries to put a stop to it by firing a rocket and when he hits the tank, the tank's armor does its job. He knows that he has to fire again and Ed tells him that he has to fire his RPG. Sarge says that the only way to do this is to get above the tank and has Ed climb up the mountain to get a better angle. Ed gets into position, he's spotted by the tank, and he slips and he fires the RPG, hitting a boulder that causes a small avalanche, which sends the enemy tank over the side. They head back to the firebase, and the lieutenant in charge says that the orders have come in from headquarters that one chopper is being sent in, and the American soldiers will be taken out. The chopper lands, but Sarge and his men decide to stay. Ed wants to stay as well, but he's told to get back on the chopper with the last caption box reading, and his firebase brass hut fell away below him, he knew well what they were feeling. Business left unfinished. For them, leaving was impossible, even though they knew better than most that it was an insane cause already lost. One of the things that I knew was eventually coming as I made my way through the Chuck Dixon run on this title was the return of Ed Marks to a regular role. I know that we've seen him here and there since he first left the series, and those stories were always a great way to show the impact that the war was having back home, especially on a soldier who had returned. However, that was also during the points where Doug Murray was writing the book in real-time format, so we could see the continuation of Ed's story as the war progressed in Vietnam. By the time Chuck Dixon took over, that format had been abandoned, and while he did progress us into the early 1970s, when we had the return of characters such as Ice and Speed, we didn't get much else beyond that. Granted, we did wind up with some very solid stories, and some great multi-part tales such as The Death of Joe Halland, and the one-and-done stories like Ruth's Heath's Sniper issue. But Ed was always essentially the heart of the book, and knowing that he was coming back was what got me through stories such as that last Punisher three-parter because I knew that the book would be more or less returning to its roots. To his credit, John Lomax does not return us to territory already covered. Instead, he puts us more or less around the time the book would be taking place had it continued on through its original mandate of real time, I give it a shake a few months, I guess. And that means that Ed has become a reporter and he's now embedded. 
So just like we got the view of the reader through an inexperienced soldier in the first 12 issues, these next 12 issues or so, because they are only about 14 or 15 left and they don't all have Ed Marks in them, are going to also give us the view of the reader, this time through a journalist. And if you're a person who's been reading since the beginning, you have more experience than you did with issue one. And therefore, you're more accustomed to the action, the same way that Ed Marks is when he touches down at the firebase. It's actually a nice touch, and while I'm not sure that Lomax did this on purpose, I feel that he knew enough to trust the reader was going to really know something about the war, way more than when Doug Murray had started the title in late 86. The story is pretty solid, and I appreciate the fact that Lomax doesn't have the soldiers be standoffish or hostile to Marx. Maybe it's because Marx actually served, so he knows something more than other journalists. But Lomax avoids the cliche of Ed having to somehow prove himself to this group, and that doesn't, you know, that doesn't want him there. He also has Ed remember how much he knows instantly. And I thought the fact that he was having dreams about his original company was well done. After all, it's realistic to think that someone who had seen combat and left would have memories stirred up and even instincts awakened after returning to that same situation. Yes, I think that Mark's having to fire the RPG and almost getting himself killed in the process was a little too much, but it made for a good action scene and contributed to the rather scrappy nature of the men at the firebase. Plus, we only meet them once, and Don Lomax is able to make it so that we care about them at least enough to understand, like Ed does, when they decide to stay at the end. This is a very simple story, or it's a very simple introduction to a three-parter. Ed arrives, he meets people, there's action, and he has to leave, not with, but not without seeing the character of the people he's been around. The narration boxes the beginning and the end of the issue mention the idea of soldiers like Ed having unfinished business in Vietnam, and that's what the sergeant and his men are demonstrating. Perhaps what Lomax himself is taking care of. Like I said, we haven't seen Ed in quite a while, and there was always the sense that while the stories we were reading were really good, we had unfinished business with our original protagonist. This sets that tone really well all around. Wayne Van Zandt is back on the art and extremely solid here. He's inking himself, and you can see that he's come a long way from his original run of the book, with the characters being more expressive and the equipment, weapons, and vehicles being as intricately drawn as they need to be. He does a good job at utilizing panel grids well, too, pacing the action in a way that is tense and effective. Plus, he drew so many issues of the series, including a few where Ed appeared, that it's almost comforting to see him starting up this particular storyline with this new writer. And at this point, and we're well into the 90s comics era, it feels like it's still holding on to its original promise. There's only one splash page, the title page, where Ed just left the chopper and is on his way to the bunker while dodging fire, and everything is presented in a way that is straightforward and real as opposed to the over-the-top over nature of recent Punisher issues or the other comics of its day. It's a really good start to a new run of the book, and next month I'll be taking another look at Operation Chicken Lips Part 2, but that'll be the next episode. Right now, I'm going to take a break, and when I get back, I'll have historical context, letters, and ads. Files. A fan podcast devoted to the comic series Xenozoic Tales. It's a post-apocalyptic adventure series filled with Cadillacs and dinosaurs. 
I'm Ruth. And I'm Darren. We hope you'll join us as we discuss the stories, characters, and art in this excellent comic series from creator, writer, and artist Mark Schultz. Xenozoic Xenophiles is available at podbean.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. And find us at xenozoicxenophiles.com. And we're back. So we're looking at March 1972, and there is a major offensive that ties right into this particular storyline. But before I get to that, I want to note that there will be two smaller events of note during the war. On March 10th, the 101st Airborne Division is withdrawn from Vietnam. And on March 23rd, the United States boycotts the Paris peace talks. But on March 30th, North Vietnam came launched what came to be known as the Easter Offensive, and that's what you see starting in this issue. It is an offensive very similar to what you saw in the Tet Offensive of 1968, and it lasts from March all the way into September of 72. Basically what happens is that 200,000 North Vietnamese soldiers under the command of General Vo Nguyen Giap is undertaken as a result of the U.S. troop withdrawal, the strength of the anti-war movement, in America likely preventing a U.S. retaliatory response and the poor performance of South Vietnam's own army during Operation Lapson 719 in 1971. So, while it does appear to be an attempt to finally conquer South Vietnam, it was also done to gain much ter- as much territory as possible and to destroy many units of the Arvin as possible to improve the North's negotiating position at Paris as the peace accords drew toward a conclusion. Jap's immediate strategy involved the capture of Quang Tri in the northern part of South Vietnam and Con Tum in the midsection and An Lok in the south. That first city, Quang Tri, is what is featured in our issue here, and according to Wikipedia, this was the very first part of the offensive. Two PAVN divisions, the 304th and 308th, which are approximately 30,000 troops, supported by more than 100 tanks and two regiments, then rolled over the DMZ to attack I-Corps, the five northernmost provinces in South Vietnam. The North Vietnamese 308 and two independent regiments assaulted the Ring of Steel, which is the Ark of the Arvin firebases, just south of the DMZ. From the west, the 312th, including an armored regiment, moved out of Laos along Route 9, past Quezon, and into the Quang Tri River Valley. Significantly, Allied intelligence had failed to predict both the scale of the offensive and the method of attack, giving the PAVN the inestimable benefit of shock effect, a crucial psychological edge over defenders who had expected something quite different. North Vietnam's communist leaders also hoped a successful offensive would harm Richard Nixon politically during this presidential election year in America, much as President Lyndon Johnson had suffered as a result of the 68 Tet Offensive. The communists believed Nixon's removal would disrupt American aid to South Vietnam. Now, the operation was a success for the North Vietnamese. As a key firebase, Firebase Carroll fell in early April, and although the North's forces were slowed quite a bit by South Vietnamese counterattacks, they drove the United States out of Quang Tri by May 1st, along with thousands of South Vietnamese. Meanwhile, to the west of Quang Tri, U.S. firebases were falling, and General Abrams noted that, in summary, the pressure is mounting and the battle has become brutal. The senior military leadership has begun to bend and, in cases, to break. In adversity, it is losing its will and it cannot be depended upon to take the measures necessary to stand and fight. As far as the results and aftermath, here is what Wikipedia has to say. 
At the conclusion of the Arvin counteroffensive, both sides were exhausted, but they were considered their efforts to have been successful. While the South Vietnamese and the Americans believed the policy of Vietnamization had been validated, the internal weaknesses of the South Vietnamese command structure, which had been rectified somewhat during the emergency, reappeared once it had passed. During the operations, more than 25,000 South Vietnamese civilians had been killed, and almost a million became refugees, 600,000 of whom were living in camps under government care. American casualties in combat for all of 1972 totaled only 300 killed, most of them during this offensive. The Paris peace talks would continue, although I won't get too much into that episode because it will be part of future episodes. And that is the historical context for this particular episode. Well, let's get into the, the second, uh, the, the last section, or well, actually the second to last section. Um, there is no letter column this month, but we do have some ads, and it's uh, this is the uh, early 1990s, and we have on the inside cover Rick Moranis with a dog staring at us with a giant sneaker about to step on him, and that is the advertisement for the sequel to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Honey, I blew up the kid, and I gotta be honest... I never saw this movie. I used I've seen Honey I Shrunk the Kids. I've seen Honey I Shrunk the Kids more time than I think I um remember uh because we ended up getting it on video cassette and watched it quite a bit cuz for what it's worth that first movie was um really really good and it was uh, a fun sort of well-written special effects silly comedy but at the same time like I don't know. I, I went to, just as of this recording, I recently went to see the movie um, Early Man, which is a uh, it's it's a Nick Park movie, which is basically stop-motion claymation, and it was cavemen playing soccer. It was actually, it's really silly and really cute, and it was really done well, but the previews, and there's, you know, there's always like 15 to 20-minute previews, um, for the movies that were kids' movies, it was they were all like these badly see computer animated movies that relied way too much on like really bad fart jokes and really crude humor and in some cases like really inappropriate humor like there's one with gnomes i think it's like called like sherlock gnome or something and there is a character called like mankini which i believe was well that was a character was a character on the soup but it was uh, the guy. It's a gnome, a garden gnome wearing a thong onesie bathing, like bathing suit, kind of like the Borat bathing suit, where it's like a, a banana hammock with straps along. I'm like, and I'm not trying to sound like prudish, but like this is like a movie that like little kids are gonna want to see, and I'm like, no. And then just movie after movie after movie with like just really just cheap, cheap humor and no sophistication. And, and there were silly elements to a movie like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, but the fact that it, it, I mean, it had its special effects budget, and the fact that it was um, relied on, like, a strength of a script that was actually pretty good, it's just, you miss the days, and then maybe, maybe there were more movies, like, crappy movies like that. I'm sure there were when I was little, but you miss the days of when, like, you know, when you remember that the movies that endure are the ones that are well-written and, and don't, like, talk down to its audience or think it's being... or, like, rely on this really just tired formula. 
Anyway, that's me ranting about like just having to sit through 20 minutes of really crappy previews before a movie that was actually really silly and well-written and fun and would be worth repeat viewings as opposed to like crap and like serious crap. Anyway, moving on, we have uh, we have a Ferrari <clears throat> Grand Prix challenge uh, for NES Game Boy and Genesis from a claim video game ad. And it's interesting to see that like I think the Super Nintendo was out by this point. Um, and it was, but it was sort of in its like first few, few years. So you still had, um, you still had, uh, NES games coming out because the NES was stopped, uh, producing games in like 94, but we're clearly in that transition period where some of these games on the re on the resale market probably are worth a little bit of money because like nobody was buying them because people were transitioning over to different, uh, different systems and the Genesis was like hugely getting hugely popular was hugely popular at this point. We have an ad for score baseball cards, um, series two, Don Mattingly is the spotlight and, uh, other featured in on various, uh, cards here are Chuck Knobloch, Sandy Alomar Jr., Frank Thomas, and Jeff Bagwell. And I should note that it's clear that Jeff Bagwell's, um, picture was clearly taken at, Shea Stadium because I recognize the the blue dugout and the orange seats behind them. I always marveled, and this was a Tops thing, and I know it's because Tops was located um, out of New York City. Like I think it was Tops was headquartered in Brooklyn, but um, there were always so many Tops cards that I recognized, like from that non Mets cards I recognized from Shea because it was obvious that like they were that's where, like where they were close to with the National League, and there were probably a number of Yankee Stadium cards for like visiting Yankee Stadium team, so it was just one of those things I always recognized as a kid. Anyway, moving on, we have an ad for Castlevania 4 for the Super Nintendo, um, which is from Konami, which is always a really solid game company. I always love their games for the Nintendo. I've never played this game. It is a little, it is 16-bit. It probably looks a little more sophisticated, even though the screenshots do look definitely like they are still for the Nintendo, so maybe they didn't Game Pro is saying it's the year's best action adventure game. Electronic Gaming Monthly says the inf mode seven effects are incredible and it takes video games to new heights. And there are a number of um, other other good reviews for it. So it is um, it is probably more well remembered, or at least was more well loved than say the video game for Hook, the Steven Spielberg movie. This was put out by Sony Image Soft for the. Um, NES and Game Boy. So again, two competing systems from Nintendo, and you wonder like who was who decided that we're going to produce for the Nintendo and for the Super Nintendo, and why? It was like we don't have much faith in this game, so let's dump it onto the Nintendo and let's put the games we really want into the Super Nintendo, especially since Nintendo was very um, stingy with their licensing and would only allow so many outside. Um, company licenses and things like that so perhaps like a company like konami would save the marquee games for the snes and then would dump the crap to the nes because it was it was a fading system who knows we have an entertainment this month ad and uh it says that you'll get a free spider-man 
anniversary poster. If you send your order in postmark by June 22nd of 1992, this is the 30th anniversary of Spider-Man. So you, this is where you had this web, the the four Spider-Man titles, Web, Spectacular, Adjectiveless, and Amazing, had one issue where it was a hologram cover of Spidey, and then there was some sort of storyline inside there that was supposed to kind of mark the 30th anniversary. And of course, similar to Spectacular Spider-Man 189 or Web of Spider-Man 90, Spider-Man 26, Amazing Spider-Man 33 to 65 will be hot. Highest possible recommended. Um, I had all four of these. I had two of them as second printings and two of them as first printings. I remember reading a couple of them like over and over and over again, but then um, the others I don't think I read very much at all. So it was... I think it might have lived up to its potential. I'm not sure. We have other things. The Batman Returns deluxe movie adaptation by Danny O'Neill and Victor Giordano, and then the Catwoman Defiant and Penguin Triumphant one-shots, which I believe were prestige format for the time, what they, was, they were calling it at the time. Infinity War. Infinity War takes place right after the Infinity Gauntlet. It is hot! Ghost Rider was big. Uh, the Cable Trade had Lloydfield <laughs> art! Um, we have, let's see, Image. Image was, now, Image was well-established at this point because we have the Savage Dragons, all-new violent superhero by Eric Larson, and that is hot! We have an all-new superhero series, Spawn, by Todd McFarlane, and that is blisteringly hot! We have a hot new team of mutant superheroes by Jim Lee, X-Men Lee, called Wildcats, and that is highly recommended. And then we have... The Next Generation of Mutant Heroes by Rob Liefeld, which is Youngblood, and that is hot. But we also have Brigade, a new radical group of mutant heroes by Liefeld. Issue number one includes two trading cards. So hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. And... If you want to hear me go through the original uh, miniseries for Brigade with Mike Bailey, uh, go back and listen to um, the Pop Culture Affidavit episode for December of 2016, which was my first Festivus episode where Our Feats of Strength was making it through that miniseries. We had a blast. It's so bad. It is just, it is like the 90s of 90s comics. Flipping on, we have an East Coast Comics ad, um, the kind of stalwart ad we had for years from East Coast Comics, which would just basically be a white background with the East Coast Comics logo and a huge list of comics that were available. We have a Fighting Masters video game ad for the Sega Genesis that you can, and from Traco, which is a video game co company I never heard of, but you can catch the hottest Traco news, game tips, and sneak previews by sending away for their Fighting Masters um, collector's card. So you can, like, send away and, and win something. It's, like, cut out the comic, like, whatever. Um, there was a series of ads around this time, house ads for Marvel, that says they were the big guns, and they would have a target a sniper like a, a a sight from a gun and the character would be in the middle of the site and we have one for terror incorporated which says make way for a new kind of assassin he'll tear you limb from limb and then the other one would be the new punisher Warzone series saying it's a jungle out there and you'll need all the help you can get two-fisted big guns action monthly from marvel we have the new york Great Eastern Convention schedule, and it's growing and growing to the point where it is now a full page with New York, Detroit, Denver, Springfield, uh, Sacramento, San Francisco, Miami, Chicago, 
L.A., D.C., Wayne, <laughs> yeah, Wayne, New Jersey, etc. And then a Marvel subscription ad with the thing holding the thing up. We have an ad for Cops the Job, which was by which is a four issue limited series by Larry Hama, Mike Harris, and Jimmy Palmiotti. And it says if you've never you see the two main characters holding their guns. If you've ever known a cop, if you've ever cared for a cop, if you've ever never ever needed a cop, then read Cops the Job. Um, at as of this recording, um, it's not out yet. If you're listening to right when this comes out, but later later in March 2018. Pop Culture Affidavit, my other show, episode 86 of that, we'll be covering that whole miniseries along with the DC Comics series Underworld, which came out in 1987. So uh, take a look at that. It'll be out at, toward the end of March if you want to hear uh, what that series is like and if it's worth uh, searching in 50 cent bins for. There is an NBA on LJN. Uh, featuring stars of the time, including Lakiki Olajuwon, Carl Malone, Patrick Ewing. And then on the back, we have another baseball card ad with Ken Griffey Jr. stepping out of an upper deck baseball card. And that, you know, this is the era of the big boom and then big bust, not only in comics, but in trading cards and baseball cards and things. And, you know, to be honest, with the exception of some trading card series and trading card games such as Magic the Gathering and Pokemon and etc. That market really never recovered. Uh, there's a couple of really good books about that. Mint Condition is the name of one that I read. There's another one called Cardboard Heroes, which I did not read, but I, I do intend to pick up at some point and read. So anyway, uh, before I go, I have a, a bit of an old recording. This is something that actually did air on my other podcast, Pop Culture Affidavit, back in September of 2017, or October 2017, after I visited the uh, the Baltimore Comic Con. But I, I wanted to put it here as well, because I did have the opportunity to go see Michael Golden, who was the original artist on the NOM. And I had him sign, in addition to a old uh, Marvel Comics adaptation of the Pit and the Pendulum and a Batman family issue that he drew, which you'll hear us talk about a little bit, the Savage Tales issues that feature the fifth to the first. So we got to talk a little bit about that, and I wanted to put the whole conversation in here, just as you did hear it on Pop Culture Affidavit if you listen to the other show. But if you don't, it's new for you. So uh, here is me and Michael Golden last fall talking about the NOM. Yeah, I just had a question about a couple of the books I'm getting signed. The other Batman, because I absolutely love your take on Batman. Well, thank you, sir. The Savage Tales one, this is the, where the, uh, the two, two of the, those fifth to the first stories, the pre-NOM ones, and I, I, yep. I cover the NOM, and I talked to, on a podcast, and I, I talked to Doug... Murray last year. I was just curious as to how... Just on the cover? Or yeah, just on the cover. I was just curious how you got... Um, how you met Doug and how you how you ended up on, on this uh, project with him. Uh, well, that is a very long and convoluted story. Uh, I was brought into the... the... the, the NOM by virtue of this. Mm -hmm. I was wondering uh, how you got this. Well, this was Larry Hama, the editor on this book, created, wanted to create a black and white magazine. Mm 
Uh, he didn't have a name for it. We were talking about it, and I said, well, why don't you just revive the Savage Tales title, thus, mm -hmm. Savage Tales. Uh, and then he said, well, you know, he's got this writer uh, that he's working with who wants to do nom stories. I said, fine, I do it. And that's basically the short version of the story. Had you any experience with war comics before? I know you did some G.I. Joe covers uh, quite a bit. Uh, well, other than that, I would have to say no. Okay, yeah. Um, and I noticed that this was something I found randomly, and you had a Poe story you didn't hear, the Casco Montiato. Was yes. that something you, you chose? You uh, Did you ever do any other work on adapting? Well, like for that? about three years, this was done like so early. I mean, for mm -hmm. like three years, I was working for both Marvel and DC. Well, uh -huh. not even three years, uh, maybe two years. And both of the companies wanted me to work for them, but they didn't have anything for me to do. So they would feed me these anthology stories. I was like, these these books for Marvel over at DC. It was Tales of Mystery and uh, House of Secrets. And yeah. Channel. So that's where those come from. Um, I I'm an English teacher, and uh, after I found this, uh, this this got passed around my department, and we had a we had a blast reading through these because uh, my yeah. friends who love to teach Poe. Yeah. Really, really got to kick. No, out of I this. really, I always, I'm, I'm, I lament that neither, none of the companies do the anthology book magazines or books anymore, mm -hmm. because they were great places to train artists and writers. Mm -hmm. uh, they also give you a flavor of everything. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, how many different artists are there in here? I think it's three, like three or four. Yeah. yeah. You know, uh, same thing with Savage Tales. I mean, you know, it's like you have. A, a what, what would you call it? Uh, well, a, a, a subject matter. Yeah. You know, like okay, this is Poe, mm -hmm. uh, and then you have different creative people doing their takes on Poe. You know, this was, you know, adolescent violence. Yeah. You know, <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, and so you get a bunch of guys to do, yeah. you know, Rambo stories. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and uh, I, you know, I, I always thought they were. They were the perfect training ground for people, and they also gave it, like I said, they gave the people who liked those, you know, different takes on the exact same mm -hmm. subject matter. All right, well, thank you very much. I don't want to hold up your line. No, no, here, we're good. It's a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Take thank care. you. And that'll do it. Next episode, I will be taking a look at issue number 71 of the series, which is part two of Operation Chicken Lips. I will also be moving on my coverage of uh, 1972, and I will be bringing back sort of a pop culture segment because I want to find I wanted to find a way to cover the 1980s, early 1990s television show China Beach, which was the Dana Delaney series about nurses in the Vietnam War. So what I'm going to do is take the back half of four episodes to cover each of the four seasons and that way you get a little bit instead of uh, one huge episode because it fit in the show's format that way in addition i am going to cover the book that provided some of the early source material for china beach and that is the book home before morning it's a memoir by army nurse linda vandevanter who served in vietnam as a nurse in uh, in the 60s and, and 70s, and it, it talks about her time in the war as well as her 
efforts to cope with post-traumatic stress disorder after coming home from the war. And that's the novel. That's what we're going to be taking a look at next episode. So I'll be taking a look at that particular book. And then after that, uh, do four episodes on the back end of the episodes, our regular episode about China Beach. So uh, come back for that. And until next time, uh, please leave iTunes reviews. Uh, you can go to the Facebook page, which still seems to be growing, and, and leave some comments. I've been trying to post some articles and things where I where I come across it, uh, come across them that that have to deal with the Vietnam War. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @popaff for the pop culture affidavit site and podcast, as well as in country. And until next time, thanks for listening, and take care. I've been to Hollywood, I've been to Redwood, I crossed the ocean for a heart of gold. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders, and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom. I'm